Hey, it's game day for us in here this morning, though, and uh, what a great opportunity we have to be able to spend some time getting to know the real Jesus. And that's the, that's the whole point of this. The Gospel of Mark is the earliest record that we have. This is the first time anybody ever put pen to paper to record the life, the real happenings, the sayings, the doings, the meaning of the life of Jesus. And Mark, as we've said now for a few weeks, is a great way of getting into the story of the life of Jesus because it doesn't require a huge commitment of time. This is, this is a relatively short little bit of writing. Mark is an economist with words. He, he, he races right to the point. There's an immediacy to Mark with his writing. He gets to it right off the bat. You remember the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning, it says, Mark 1.1, of the good news of Jesus the Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. And you'll know, and you've heard me say a number of times, Christ is not his last name. It's not a name at all. It's a title, and it means anointed. He is the anointed one, the king. What's this about? This is about the coming of the king. Unless we be confused about what king this is, same sentence right at the beginning. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. God among us. This is, this is a bombshell. I mean, this is an indication that, that what would be forever impossible had now become possible, that, that God had come crashing through the wall that had separated us from him, that in Jesus, not just the king had come, but along with them, a new kingdom, a new understanding of the world God has made, one that, that, that bristles with the, the values and, and the dreams and the plans of God. This is quite literally the place where God's reign and rule are fully at work. And today we continue our journey through the life of Jesus, and we get to a section where, where there's this, this large area of work that's all around the healing ministries of Jesus. You see around verse 21 through till, well, the midpoint of chapter 2, lots and lots of, of ministry and healing and, and hope is happening. And in the midst of this, we're given a glimpse of of two things that I want to draw your attention to particularly this morning. The first is the richness of the interior life of Jesus. What's going on inside of him? We get a snapshot of that. And then we get to look at the richness of the external life, the ministry of Jesus. And I want to hold those two things up and put them together because the one absolutely feeds into the other. So that's our plan. The interior life and then the external ministry of Jesus in these opening chapters of Mark. Let's have a look uh, in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Verse 35 of chapter 1. Neil read it so beautifully for us. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark. been told there are two kinds of people in the world. There's morning people and those who hate morning people. I'm... I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm just telling you what side Jesus is on. Very, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about the baptism of Jesus and coming up out of the waters. The first thing he does is he, he goes out into the wilderness, the desert, a solitary place. 
It became a place of temptation, but but it was especially it was being a place for Jesus where he could root himself in his identity as God's very own. It says that he went off to this solitary place, verse 35, and he prayed. While he was there at prayer, Simon and some of his companions, these are the early disciples, they went off looking for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. What's going on? I mean, the people now for, for some days or weeks or, or maybe even months, they, they had been a witness to the miraculous power of Jesus, the things that he was doing, power over nature, power over disease, the power to encourage, the power to forgive. Everybody wanted to see him. They all wanted to book an appointment with Jesus. Sign me up. And so the disciples, they go looking for him. said, where did you go? I mean, ministry is flourishing right now. Everything is going well. We're being productive. The message is getting out. You're incredibly popular. This is just over the top. What are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere? Let's get back in the game. And if ever there was a difference between between Jesus and his predilections and his priorities and values and, and ours, it's probably here. Because I don't know about you, but, but if I'm in the middle of a season of incredible productivity, everything is working, and, and it's just, it's so effective, I don't want to stop. I want to get as much done as I can while I'm being most effective. And the things that get squeezed out during those seasons of life are things like solitude and, and quiet and prayer. And these are the very things that Jesus goes running towards. The busier he gets, the more he prays. The busier he gets, the more he prays. And you, you see a couple of things going on that, that are worth noting. The first is the, the supreme priority that prayer had in the life of Jesus. Discipleship is, as we have said before, uh, it, it's mainly about reordering our priorities, getting what's first, first getting things lined up. For Jesus, this was priority. Early in the morning, still dark, Jesus gets up, goes to a solitary place to pray. It's not like he booked a, I don't know, a suite at the Radisson or a room with a view. I mean, he's out there, he's isolated, no distractions. And from the time that he goes out there to the time that the disciples find him, I mean, this is just a matter of minutes. He's, He's probably out there for for a couple of hours. What does it mean? Well, for one thing, it means that, that you and I uh, inclined sometimes to, to make mistakes, weak, prone to error. If you and I in that state pray this much and Jesus in his perfect state prays this much, doesn't that come as a kind of challenge? or as an incentive, if he thinks it's that important, if it's that big a priority, if he expands his prayer life when busyness increases, what does that say about the way that we live? Where the big rocks in our life often get crammed out by all the other little things that we try and jam in. For Jesus, nothing was higher higher priority. But here's the second thing we learn. We learn about the dynamic core of what prayer really is. When you look at these verses, it doesn't tell you what Jesus prayed, which would make sense because there's nobody there to hear it. But 
But the entire direction of the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, when you put it in context, we know how Jesus prayed. We know an awful lot about the dynamic core of prayer in Jesus' life. For example, Mark 14, one of the most poignant moments of prayer. Jesus at prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his heart before God. The cross is before him. He's not sure whether he has the resolve and the strength to do it. He pours his heart out to God, and he cries out, and the first word tumbling out of his mouth is, Father, Father. Literally, Abba, which is Aramaic for, for Papa. Shocking. I mean, startlingly imminent. Nobody had prayed this way before. When the disciples asked him, Jesus, we need to know more. Teach us about prayer. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer. You remember how it starts? What's the basic thing? What's the first words out of our mouth? Our Father. Again, striking, jarring. What does it mean? It means the essence of prayer is not, Lord, give us today our daily stuff. That doesn't come first. The essence of prayer isn't, Lord, forgive us our wrongdoings, as important as that is. What comes first? Orientation. Prayer is a radical reorientation. The essence of prayer is searing into our senses, our our heart, our mind. This white-hot reality that Jesus reveals God not as some absentee landlord in the universe, but as a loving father who is relentlessly committed to you. That's the essence of prayer. It's the beginning of prayer. It's the foundation on which everything else is based. Prayer is not so much what's being said. Prayer is a way of reorienting our lives and our senses to this reality that the Lord of the universe has revealed himself as a loving father to you. Think about that. Infinite, transcendent power, gentled down and offered to you. All of that motivated and, and shaped by the most tender, fatherly, parental love that you can imagine. I was reading a little bit this week. Don't, don't ask me why. Rabbit holes on the internet. Um, Charlie Drew, who's known in the field of, of medicine, but wrote a little bit about, uh, in, in a biographical format, about his mother-in-law, who, who said, when you become a parent, when you become a parent for the rest of your life, you are only ever as happy as your unhappiest child. Hmm. What she meant was this, that, that when you become a parent, your happiness gets bound up with their happiness. Parenthood inserts your happiness into the happiness of your children so that that if they're suffering, you're suffering. If they have no joy, it's hard for you to find joy. And just think about this. If that's the case for us, inclined sometimes to selfishness and brokenness and, and errors in parenting, how much more intimately must our Heavenly Father passionately, lovingly, be committed to you. Remember in the early section of Mark's gospel, the baptism of Jesus, he, he comes launching up out of the water and, and he hears a voice, the voice of God saying, you are my son. You delight me. Prayer 
was always Jesus' way of recentering himself in that reality. The engine of Jesus' life, the power of his life, was the joy of sonship. And so he goes back to that reality, grounds himself in it every day. It's what gives joy to his ministry, gives power to ministry, it gives purpose. The purpose of his ministry, if you'd like, is to create a multitude of other people who understand and delight and revel in that relationship with God as Father and themselves as sons and daughters. Let's just summarize this this first little point, that prayer was the foundation of Jesus' life, and that the purpose of prayer is not to get things, it's to get God. Does that make sense? The purpose of prayer is not to get things from God. It's to get God, to get our lives calibrated around this reality that not only God exists, but he exists for you, because of you, with you. And and to the degree that you know that and you can orient your heart around that, we don't fall victim to all the other things that we sometimes need to prop ourselves up the adoration and affection of other people, which is a fleeting thing. You know, you feel like you can't handle losses or provocation or you just have to scrounge around for, for love or security or significance. You're free of all of that. Prayer grounds you. Okay, let's move on. That's the, that's the riches of the interior life of Jesus. Let's talk about the external work of Jesus because you see it on full display in here, starting way back uh, around verse 21 and all the way through to uh, chapter 2, verse 12. But we're going to take this, this, one, this one section out of the middle of that as, as a way of just unpacking the ministry of Jesus. Again, what's going on here? Jesus is, is so effective in doing what he does that crowds are being are thronging to him, they're flocking to him, and everywhere he goes, they kind of want the same thing. Jesus, boy, you are an amazing dispenser of miracles, good things. We want to we hold on to you. Don't leave. Stay, stay with us. You are the solution to our problems and our needs. I mean, you can just meet our needs through, through miraculous power. Stay put. And meet our needs. And Jesus, while he had compassion for people, wasn't going to be hemmed in by that. He says with his actions and later with his words, I have to to go to everyone else as well. And I'm not just here to meet the needs that you know about. The ones that sometimes get solved through these flashy exterior actions. I'm here to address the needs you don't know about yet. And I'm going to do it through preaching the word of God. I'm going to go preach the word. I'm going to call people to repentance. Remember, that's the first word out of Jesus' mouth. Repent. Change things up. Get God into the mix. I'm going to call people to this, to repentance. I'm not just here to feed the hungry and heal the sick. I'm here to minister and preach the word. And so he goes... He goes running from here and says he was at work preaching the word of God in synagogues all over Galilee. And then what do you know? Verse 40, he heals a man with leprosy. What does that mean? No words without deeds. 
and no deeds without words. There is a richness and a fullness and a a multidimensionality to the ministry of Jesus. He insists on calling people to repentance, but he also insists that if you are one called, that you cannot look at the world God has made through eyes that are calloused and ungenerous. Repent, you need to be saved by grace, but that changes you. And then out of you, something floods and flows into the world that addresses real human need. And the perfect case study is right here with the leper. Verses 40 and 41. Are you still with me? People are here? Maybe we need some of that spicy soup. Where is that? Yeah. Verses 40 and 41. A man with leprosy came to Jesus, got down on his knees and begged, if you are willing, make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. I am willing. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Let me pause, because there was a question after the first service. Um, You have in your Bible, it says, Jesus looked at him, and, and he was indignant. And then we think, well, that doesn't sound right, does it? And then there's a little letter and a footnote down at the bottom that says some translations actually have, and Jesus looked on him with compassion and said, I am willing. So I don't know what's going on there, except whenever you see those little footnotey things, normally what it means is that we're looking at very, very old manuscripts, and often more than once, sometimes hundreds. And while they agree 99.9% of the time, every once in a while you run into one of these things where maybe there was an ink stain or faded or a note in the market, we're just not quite sure. But, but understand the sentiment there. With compassion, he looks and says, I am willing. Why is this, why is this a great indication of the, the multidimensionality of the ministry of Jesus? Here's what we know about leprosy. Leprosy in those days wasn't just a disease, not just a disease of the body. It was an affliction that was catastrophic to your whole life, physical, social, spiritual. I mean, physically, to be a leper means that you are literally falling apart, catastrophic skin disease, literally eating you alive, pain and misery. But it went deeper than that. Socially, leprosy means you're a pariah. You're contagious, and so you can't go near any other living human being. You can't be there in other inhabited places. You have to stay out in the lonely places, in the desert. We know, we've known for for decades, longer than that, that, that babies can't even survive without physical touch. And here, with leprosy, you're confined to a life without being touched by or being able to touch another human being. Absolute emotional isolation. If they ever came near an inhabited place, they had to cry out at the top of their lungs, unclean, unclean, and people would scatter for the hills. So they're socially completely cut off, physically falling apart, and spiritually. Everyone looked at the lepers and said, cursed by God. Don't know what you did, but it was bad. You were cursed by God. And even deeper than that, 
It meant that you were excluded from the worship life of the people. You could never worship. You could never do what you're doing here today. And there were all of these rules around, around lepers and leprosy. Because not only did it punish those who had the disease, it punished everyone else who might come near them. Here's just one place, one example from the writings of rabbis in the first century. It says, if a leper stands under a tree and a clean man passes under that same tree, the latter becomes unclean. What? So you're not even close. You're not holding hands. You just pass under the shadow of the same tree, and that's enough. And now you're unclean too. Now you're cut off too. Now you can't go to worship either until you go through the elaborate steps of purification and cleansing. The leper, more than anyone else, I imagine, knows that to be saved means so much more than just one thing. If you're willing, he says, you can make me clean. Notice what he doesn't ask. If you're willing, you can heal me. You can make me well. There's something deeper here. You sense it? You can make me clean. That's not just something that happens physically, though Jesus reaches out and touches him. Can you imagine what it meant to be touched? But in that moment, he's restored to, to the community of people. He, he put himself out there. I mean, can you, can you imagine... What a, what a risky step it is to, to, to put yourself in the presence of, of all these other people uh, and there with all of them watching to, to cry out to Jesus, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then you wait. And everything hinges on what you're waiting for because if, if Jesus does nothing, if he walks away, if he rebukes you, you are in stern and strict violation of every rule that they knew about cleanliness. You probably were about to be stoned to the point of death or, or past it. But Jesus does heal. And he heals comprehensively. He heals the physical ailment. He restores him to the life of the community. He heals him spiritually. He even says, in order to show that it's happened, go to the priest. The priest was like the public health official, among other things in that day. Go to the priest. Present yourself. They'll see. You are clean again. When you love someone, I mean, when you, when you really love them, you try and address all of the needs that you see. You don't just sit around and have ideological debates. You know, evangelism is more important than social justice. It's more important that, that people get fed and that they hear the good news and... When you see a person's needs, all of their needs, you meet all of the needs. It's what, it's what Jesus does. And one of the things that, that keeps us up late at night in, in, in joyful imagining is what the church would look like. Uh, vast, global, I mean, the, the, God's worldwide church. What it would look like if they embodied that ministry of Jesus. 
Because here's what tends to happen. Sociologists have studied this. They draw a spectrum of, of religious institutions. Way over here on the right side is, is the sectarian, fundamentalistic, legalistic, rigid group of, uh, of churches. And way over here on the left side is the, is the main line, or, uh, or some people would say liberal group of progressive churches. And there's a spectrum in between. And out on this end, the emphasis is always on the word. Let's get people converted. Let's, let's give them the gospel. Let's, let's make a decision. And, and then let's move on. Let's, let's grow the tribe. And way over here on this end, said that's, that's a little pushy. That's not politically correct or anything. But, but we can make sure that people get fed, they get housed, they get clothed. You see the problem? Word or deed? With Jesus, it was always word and deed. That, by the way, is CBM's motto, word and deed. So we're stealing it from them. But I told Jen at the first service, I'm kind of sure they stole it from Jesus. So we're just, we're just stealing it back. Yeah. Here's, uh, here's inevitably what happens when you get it right. That, that the church whose deeds speak about compassion and love they wind up being more successful in evangelism because the message is buttressed on, supported by the acts of God's people. And, and, and the, churches that are, um, the churches that are invested deeply in social justice and social needs, if they do it and they don't have a heart that has been converted and radically transformed and is teeming with the love of Jesus, they can never be as effective as that. Oh, they can be a community center, they can be a food bank, but that's, that's a world different than the body of Christ, the living embodiment of Jesus in word and deed, who are there to love a world in all of its needs. The gospel, the real gospel, the real Jesus, will produce people who don't despise the world, Maybe they don't reflect the world, but they love the world. See, over here, there's a tendency we want to write the world off. Like, we'll save those who we can, but everybody else who's outside of the church, they're going to hell. The whole world is, is doomed. That tends to be the approach. And over here, you know, we, we, we recognize that meeting physical needs, tangible needs, is, is part of the responsibility of God's people but it's only part of it. Real healing is body, mind, and soul. Real conversion is not just coming to Jesus once and saying, I give you my life. It's being knit into the body of believers who are invested always in a task of, of bringing that good news to the world. Let me, let me read you this, and then we'll, we'll move in the direction of closing things up. John Gerstner um, was a uh, mid-20th century theologian, and I have this quote. He quoted it in a, in a book that he wrote long since out of print, and he never actually said where he got the quote from. So I'm just going to say Gerstner, but you're going to love this. I, just, I love this quote. Gerstner says, In Jesus Christ, 
we see virtues combined that were never anywhere else combined. We see tenderness without weakness. We see strength without a milligram of harshness. We see humility without one ounce of uncertainty. You see unbending convictions and yet complete and utter approachability. You see power, but without the slightest insensitivity. You see passion without the slightest prejudice. You see total integrity without any rigidity, never unthinking, never a false word, never a misstep. Good quote? That's a good quote, right? You're still awake? Okay, all right. <laughs> now, here's the thing. For, for Mark, and in Mark's gospel, you know, Mark was convinced that the light that was in Jesus was the same kind of life that God intends to implant in us. Follow him, become like him. The apostle Paul was absolutely convinced that, that this wasn't just possible, but this was God's design. That in looking at Jesus, you're looking at, at God through the lens of human nature, and you're seeing what's possible. You say, how in the world could that kind of, of character and conviction, that orientation towards prayer and ministry, how could it be in me? Let's just close by looking at the leper as a case study here. Verse 40, man with leprosy came to Jesus, begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Again, a mad dash for life in the middle of precarious circumstances. Jesus reaches out and touches him. And now by every rule and regulation that we know of, it's Jesus who needs to go seek out the priest. It's Jesus who needs to be cleansed and made new. It's Jesus, not just the leper who's in peril. Because from the earliest ages of religion, we've always sort of known that if you have a clean thing and an unclean, and you put them together, what happens? The clean thing gets made foul, taking it down. All religion was based on that idea, and that you had to do something in order to restore what had been lost. Here, it changes. Here, for the first time, Jesus reaches out and touches And instead of him becoming defiled, the leper becomes cleansed. And then look what happens next. Jesus says, hey, go on in. Go into the people place. Go on into the worship place. Show yourself to the priest. They can't deny it. It's happened. But what happens to Jesus? It says, as a result, this is verse 45, the result of what happened here, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. He stayed outside in lonely places. You see what happened? They switched. The one unclean made clean. The one isolated, drawn into community. The one lost, found, and saved. What happens to Jesus? That place reserved for lepers now becomes his place. Foxes have dens, Jesus said. Birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What you really have here is a taste 
of what's to come ultimately. You know, when, when the crucifixion happened, you know where it happened? It was not in the city, surrounded by people. It was in the lonely places, outside the city gates. Calvary, actually, was a reference to the garbage heaps outside the city. There, on the summit of the garbage dump, Jesus is taken out to the place of those who've been cast aside, lepers, pariahs, criminals. He is seen as unclean. He's excluded so that we can be taken in. The Apostle Paul was so overwhelmed by this that he said, God made him sin so that we who knew no sin might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see what happened? You want the prayer life of Jesus? You want the vibrancy of ministry that Jesus enjoyed? You want to know God is, is not your boss, he's your loving, your loving father? This is how you know that Jesus was willing to switch places. You want a ministry rich in both word and deed? This is the thing that will fill you with compassion will make you like, like him. Look what Peter says to Jesus in verse 37. He says, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Peter spoke more truth there than he knew. Everyone is still looking for him. We're all looking for him, even and especially when we don't know that it's him that we are looking for. And if you miss Jesus, the real Jesus, something else is going to take that spot in your life. And whatever it is, it's going to crumble under the weight of life and its burdens. So we look at him. The dream, the goal, in reading through Mark's gospel slowly and, and lovingly and, and with listening ears and an open posture, is that in these pages, you're drawn into the life of Jesus. Just to, just to look and reflect, you see him in his beauty, in his perfection, so strong, so, so compassionate. And you find him, and you orient your life to God through him, our Father, because of him. And you make the scandalous offer of serving unconditionally in the world, and you know the scandalous offer of God's unconditional love in us. Enough for today? Okay. Let's pray together. Our God, the word scandalous is, is not one that we like to ascribe to Jesus. We like to imagine him as, as proper and right standing and, and those who follow him in the same way. God, there is something scandalous about, about the depth and the extent of his compassion for people. But the lengths which he would go, the risks that he would take, the sacrifice that he would make in order to allow us to orient our lives in prayer around God as our heavenly Father. God, would you, would you address us there? Would you make us right in our inner life so that there could be a fountain of, of joy and, 
and hope and fulfillment that can flow from us into the external acts of of grace and compassion and ministry that we want to be known for in the world, for word and for deed, both given, both empowered by Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.